Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. As my brother Ken prayed, we recognize your presence here and humble ourselves before you. Please speak to us this morning and might we have ears to hear and might, as we sang earlier, be able to lay it all down. Just hear your voice this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last week we began to talk on Genesis 19 and this morning we'll complete this chapter. It's in the context of Abraham's journey in his life and we need to talk about this chapter because Abraham shows up in a very difficult time and this biblical narrative omits very few details as the sin is an unspeakable there's wholesale destruction of multiple cities, thousands of people. And while, to be honest, we prefer to skip this chapter, in all wise, God compels us um, to look at it and study it. There's a theological truth that needs to come out on the forefront of this one. Lot and his family learned that they did not take God seriously until they nearly consumed by his wrath. And a key point to consider here is, really, how do you think about God? It might not seem the obvious question as we go into it, but it's an important one. What do you think of his attributes and his actions, his abilities and his character? What comes to your mind? More likely than not, God's love, his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his patience, He's sovereign ruler. He has moral authority to make any decisions. He's in full control. He's holy, meaning he's not contaminated by evil. He's righteous and completely pure. All those things are true, and those might run through our mind right now even. And it's, but there's one more quality that's easy to overlook. Ignore divine justice. Here's a principle we can't avoid. We must not. God's tolerance and patience has a limit. His mercy has, a, I guess you could say, an expiration date. Simply put, there are occasions when God says that's enough. No more. And Genesis 19 is one of them. It's not the first time, though. God said no more in Genesis 6. He sent the flood to those who totally rejected him. And by grace, he saved Noah and his family. But he said to his creation at that time, your wickedness is so great, no more. I need to, I need to exercise my justice. And he did. Genesis 11, God said no more. When humans in their pride became obsessed with building a monument to themselves, he put a stop to the construction of the Tower of Babel. God said no more in Daniel 5. When Belshazzar profaned God in a debauched feast celebrating false gods, God caused the city of Babylon to fall. God's mercy has its limits because his justice demands satisfaction. It's a theological truth we forget or would prefer to ignore. You see, if evil's never held accountable, if sin is never punished, God would not be just. 
It's interesting in our, our, our world that doesn't want to admit there's objective truth. If something horribly evil happens, they want justice. Intrinsically, they want justice. They want punishment to take place. But when it comes to God, they're like, whoa, wait a minute. I mean, how could God execute justice? But the scriptures tell us that God is a just God. And he can't ignore or tolerate sin. He has a standard of right and wrong. It's a standard that's good. It's right. But when people break his laws, God knows other people often suffer. Which leads us to Genesis 19, where God said, no more. In justice, God would hold evil accountable, and he would punish sin. Let's look at this sobering event. Let's pick it up in chapter 15. And one morning dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. That'd be Lot. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And it came about when they had brought them outside that one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and this small. Please let me escape there, that my life may be saved. And he said to them, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zor. You see, God, we had had read in Genesis 18, Abraham had prayed for God's protection. And in his trying to figure things out, he, he just kept trying to lower the number of righteous people. And God answered his prayer by sparing his nephew Lot. And we read in verse 15, as we kind of ended last week, with this sense of urgency. And we read about it in verse 15. The angels are like, the angels urged them. But verse 16 is confusing. Lot hesitated. The Hebrew word means to linger, to delay, to wait. Now, there's an inconsistency here, as I see, because in verse 14, Lot's urging his brother, his sons-in-law, get Come on, get out of here, hurry up. And now we see Lot hesitating. He's delaying. For whatever reason, he's finding it hard to flee himself. We're not entirely sure why he hesitated. I don't know about you, but you'd think after a mob was trying to sexually assault him, his house, and victims, you would run. All we can say for sure is Lot didn't take this threat of destruction all that seriously. When Lot continued to delay, the angels had to actually drag him out and his family to the edge of the city. And we read in verses 18 through 19, he expresses this, I guess, curious fear. He recognized that he's alive only because the angels protected him, but he persists in bickering with them and kind of arguing with them almost a little bit. And it's tough to understand, Lot, i got to be honest. The message is clear from the angels, right? Soon... And very soon, Lot, there's going to be destruction. 
This place is going to be reduced to a rubble of burning sulfur. Run, get away now. I know if I'm there, see ya, (laughs) I'm out of there. I don't think I would need a whole lot more maybe, but that's not where Lot's at. And his logic is actually kind of confusing. His objection could either mean he feels he could not physically outrun the destruction, verse 19 and 20, so he asked to run to the small town that is near enough, the scriptures say. If he was really worried, though, about being able to get far away, he would not have chosen a town nearby. With the catastrophe about to strike Sodom, Lot's arguing with the divine messenger about some escape route. But what's really going on here? There's more below the surface, I think. I think a more likely explanation is that Lot is reluctant to leave the comfort for the city to what he perceives as some outside, remote place. And so he wants to stay near enough, just in case maybe destruction doesn't come. Because there's still a part of Lot that is still attached to Sodom. And he's finding it really difficult to get too far away. He's used to that comfort. He's used to having all the things he wanted. And the idea of getting all away in isolation, away from all that, I think is probably a little too much for him at this point. He's become so entrenched in the affluence and comfort of his home in Sodom, and Sodom, he hesitates to leave it, even with God's wrath looming overhead. There's a German scholar, H.C. Leopold, and I, I, I like what he says here. He says it almost taxes the reader's patience to bear with this long-winded plea at a moment of such extreme danger. Lot appreciated little what was being done for him. Simply put, Lot really didn't take God all that seriously. It's still done today. Because the reason is many would prefer this image of God as this old grandfather, but this wrath of God's justice is, I don't know, too unsettling. But we must take God seriously. Because there's another time coming when God's going to give the ultimate no more. And there'll be no more time then. You see, Lot did not take God seriously. He weighed God's wrath against his creature comforts, and he found them as equal motivations. And so he hesitates. He delays. He lingers. But then as we read this text and continue, we see these consequences unleashed. Let's pick it up in verse 23. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife, from behind him, looked back and she became a pillar of salt. We'll stop there. Now after these angels have said in essence, run for your lives and don't stop. Don't stop anywhere in the valley. Don't look back because there's nothing there for you anymore. Don't look at Sodom. Look only to the future that lies before you. What happens here now, he's saying to Lot and Lot's wife and his daughters, what happens here is between God and these depraved people. It's no business of yours. Run. Get away and don't look back. A few hours later, 
Lot and his wife and their daughters approach Zor. We're told in verse 23, a little town on the southern end of the valley. Behind them, God's wrath rained down from the skies of fire and burning sulfur. Now, verse 24 is an important verse because sometimes as you read uh, archaeologists searching for historical uh, um, evidence of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, oftentimes you hear them talk about maybe an earthquake or something like that that took place. Verse 24 is pretty clear. If you look at the word Lord, it's a, it's a tetragrammaton. Then the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord. Now if you see Lord capitalized, it's taking you and I back to the original Hebrew, which had four letters, which made up YH. WH, which was God's name, Yahweh. We put vowels in because it's kind of hard to pronounce. <laughs> so Yahweh. And when you see Lord capitalized, it's referring back to God's name. 24s, leaving no room, no wiggle room. It reinforces this, that the disaster that struck Sodom was not a freak of nature. It was sent by Yahweh. Fire and brimstone and burning sulfur. It was not just all of a sudden some weird thing that happened with nature. God sent it. Because God said no more. That's enough. Verse 26, though, amazingly, but his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Her looking back was direct defiance to the command we read in verse 17. We're not told why she looked back. The action seems really to be more of a simple curiosity. What's going on here? She didn't take God seriously. Nor did her husband. And there were grave consequences to this as she looked back. The angels had dragged her, think about this, the angels had dragged her physically to the city limits. They urged her to flee across the plain, but her heart remained in a doomed city, bonded to the depraved ways and captive to her comfortable life. God was rescuing her for a much better life. And she longed, though, for the old way, with a longing glance back. She refused God's offer to rescue her. Matter of fact, and we read in Luke 17, 8, 28 through 33, God used her death to illustrate a, a spiritual principle that this world is temporary, it's going to end. But God's kingdom is eternal, so focus your eyes on that. But this judgment we read about is witnessed. Now Abraham shows up, verse 27. Now Abraham arose early in the morning, went to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascend like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Really, Lot's protection, in large part, was because Abraham had, ple had pleaded for him, had prayed for him, and God had honored the prayers of Abraham as he prayed for his nephew. There's a sense of something, it seemed, in Abraham that he leaves Mamre early in the morning, and it's a different word as he looked towards what was going on than the word used for lots looking back. They're different words. So they're not really the same. 
You see, disaster had swallowed up an entire valley, multiple cities, thousands of people. Matter of fact, nothing will ever be built again where Sodom and Gomorrah are. You could say it's the ultimate ground zero. And what land remains there cannot support human life on any practical measure. It's barren and it's silent. The Dead Sea and the surrounding wasteland stands as a warning to each generation to take God seriously, to respect his justice, and to come to the only one who can rescue them. That whole area is a reminder to this day, that's enough, no more. I cannot tolerate that evil anymore. And God unleashed his justice. I wondered in verse 28 what Abraham was thinking. He had to have grieved greatly as he looked down. And I think one of the reasons I can say that is because Abraham took God seriously. Therein lies the difference. He had by faith responded and believed God's promise, and he took God seriously. He wasn't perfect. We've read that, and we'll continue to read that. But one thing he did is he had great reverence for God and took him serious. The story in verse 29 about Mr. and Mrs. Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah as described is familiar to many people. But I, I wonder sometimes if we sit back in our comfort and we forget they were real people like you and me. This isn't some story that's outdated, but Lot was a real man. Lot's wife was a real woman. They were real children. They were a real family. That's taking place here. Now, Lot was regarded in the New Testament, might surprise you and surprises me, as a righteous man. 2 Peter 2.8, he could live comfortably in Sodom because his perception of reality had gradually become distorted over time. He made sense, I guess, of his senseless choices with small excuses and minor rationalizations. And maybe if you've ever dealt with a severe addict or been part of a process of intervention, it's not so far-fetched, is it, to see how Lot came up comfortable in his contaminated environment. Maybe you're not as deluded as Lot and his wife. But I still ask you to reflect. Try to see your life objectively, like we are looking at Lot's. What are you putting up with? Where are you compromising? Would you have to step back and say, am I really taking God seriously in my life? Or am I kind of setting it all aside and it's kind of part of my life, but it's not really my whole life. I wonder about Lot a lot. I wonder if there's times he looked at his daughters and grieved as they were teenage girls and they became like their peers and they wore what other girls wore and talked like other girls talked, which demonstrated their eroding values. Maybe thought and maybe heard Mrs. Lot said, just don't get so serious. They'll just grow out of it. And I think that because of what 2 Peter 8 says. God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. You say, well, that's not the Lot I see. See what had happened. Lot battled with his conscience and eventually... He just silenced it. He was tormented 
It did bother him. His conscience was really working. There's a point in there where he just silenced it. Checked out, you could say. And so Lot battled with this to the point that he was willing to hand his daughters over to a sexually aroused gang. After so many years of compromise, he'd become deceived. Don't be deceived. If it's wrong, it's a big deal. If it's habitually wrong, it's an even bigger deal. It's about taking God seriously. Lot didn't. You and I need to ask ourselves, what sins are we tolerating? What evil are we rationalizing? Do, are you and I taking God's command seriously because we take him serious? Learn from Lot and his wife. Don't be casual in your approach to God or careless in how you approach him. There's grave consequences for all that we've read so far. In verse 30 through 38, Show us some of those consequences. Lot went up from Zor and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him. For he was afraid to stay in Zor. He stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father's old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drunk to drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. The firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it came about on the, on the morrow, that would be the next day, that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with, with child by their father. And the firstborn, the firstborn bore a son, and he called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And as for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Only three people survived this destruction of the Jordan River Valley. Lot and his two daughters. They took refuge in this little town, and things didn't seem to work out, and Lot got kind of nervous, and after being rescued, just those three. Now, why they, I, I'm really perplexed why they wouldn't go to Abraham. Abraham was safe. He was the uncle. He cared about them. He had more than enough provisions. What a great place to start over. Instead, where do we read them? Moving from a small town, we find him in a cave. What are you doing in a cave lot? What on earth are you thinking? I mean, wouldn't you want a better way for your daughters? A better life for your daughters? But he's chosen, he's checked out. His conscience, he's very passive in his parenting. He's just totally checked out. And throughout this account in Genesis 19, not only did the residents of Sodom clearly lost the ability to reason properly, Lot did. Lot's wife resisted leaving the godless city. Lot made weird decisions, offering up his daughters, clinging to the city to, that is about to be destroyed, haggling and bargaining with the angels, and here choosing to live in a cave rather than seeking refuge and help from Abraham. 
You see, what this verse 30 through 38 show us is there's this huge lack of a divine perspective. We don't know how long they lived in the cave, but certainly long enough for the daughters to give up hope of ever being married. And I couldn't help but ask, if you'd been rescued by a divine messenger, would you even think, why? I mean, a logical question. God, why would you rescue me? I mean, all these other people went down. Why me? Well, we never see him asking that question. Certainly doesn't appear to enter their thinking. The concern of Lot is for his safety. But the concern of the daughters is this loss of the possibility of motherhood. It never seems to enter their thinking that God had just rescued them from destruction. He'd continue to protect them and continue to provide for them. And instead of asking God what they should do, they imagined, I believe these girls, imagined how their peers in Sodom might have approached this situation. How would they have solved this problem? And we see this huge distortion in verse 32. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him. What? You think incest is the answer here? I mean, what on earth are you thinking? It's once been said you can take the girl out of Sodom, but you can't take Sodom out of the girl. We see that really living out right here. Earlier, it, consider you know, the sins of the father visited upon the children. Earlier, the father was willing to use his daughters for sexual purposes without their consent. Guess what? Now these girls are willing to use their father for sexual purposes without his consent. What goes around comes around, huh? Where did they, where did they begin to picture and think that that's okay? All they had to do is look at Dad and the way he responded to them and the way he was willing to use them as pawns. Now, there's some many things that bother me here. And I wonder how many friends that these girls had from incestuous homes. Now, again, remember, the behavior in Sodom and Gomorrah was immoral. That wicked cities looked on them and were aghast by the immorality. These girls were surrounded by it. And I wonder how often they heard peers talk about this type of behavior. Probably enough that it seemed normal to them. In verse 33, where I look at this, this idea of the older daughter and wonder, wouldn't the younger daughter be disturbed by this? But we don't see any of that. She does not object. We see no hesitation. Both girls seem quite adept at getting what they wanted from a man. Because they know, let's get them drunk. Then we'll get what we want. What a sad picture we see. A sad picture in a lot of ways. And, and what would, how much alcohol would it have taken to get Lot so drunk to the degree that he passes out and does not even know what's going on, not one time, but two times. You see, this is a passive parent. This is a dad who's checked out. Neither girl saw their dad as a man to be respected anymore. And I find it very disturbing that neither girl saw themselves as crossing a boundary. In other words, Lot, their dad, is just like any other guy. They got no respect for him. And from this point on, Lot is passive. He no longer plays an active role at all. 
And I was reminded children who are exposed to immorality repeatedly over long periods of time begin to lose their sensitivity. Their moral compass gets distorted. And if you don't believe me, look at these two girls. A sad picture. Back in Sodom, Lot, Lot sat among the prosperous, the influential. He put all his chips on Sodom and he lost. And while he might have sat among the influential inside his home, he had no influence but that which was negative. Now verse 36 and 37, nine months separate these two verses. We see no repentance. We see no shame. We see no confrontation. Even the naming of the boys show this brazen attitude. See, back then in that culture, names carried great significance. Oldest named her son Moab, which means from father. The youngest named her Banamai, which means son of my kinsmen. How would you like that for a dinner conversation? Hey, tell me about your name. What does that mean? That, how would that uncomfortable, awkward, we would say? For sure. Disgraceful. Matter of fact, Moab, from Moab came the Moabites, and from Benami came the Ammonites, and these nations were known as persistent enemies of Israel. During the Exodus, during the conquest of the Promised Land, through the period of the judges, because they did not take God seriously, we see such a mess. What are these lessons? You see, after this, the story and narrative of Abraham's life continues. We hear nothing more of Lot. Nothing. We don't know how he reacted at the birth of the boys. We don't know when or how he died. Did he ever connect with Abraham again? We don't know because he simply fades. But not these lessons. These lessons linger. These warnings shout from the pages. First and foremost, God is a God of holiness. Take him seriously. Lot didn't. Lot's wife didn't. His daughters didn't. Will you? Do you? You see, God is pure. He's unblemished by wrongdoing. He wants you and I to walk in holiness. Our decisions, that our priorities, that our possessions, the way we rear our children would be holy. That our thoughts, we would pursue purity. And he's serious about that. It's not just a suggestion. God is a God of holiness. We must take him seriously. And I think there's another warning that just shouts from Genesis 19. No one's immune to the dangers of the world's pull. Take the battle seriously. Our culture has a dangerous moral undercurrent. And if you're not aware of it, this immorality will pull you under. How do you deal with it? First, you need to admit you're not immune. It will pull you under. How do you deal with it? First, admit you're not immune. You might have a strong Christian upbringing. You might have a very noble career. You might be active in serving the church. But I guarantee you, if you don't take this battle seriously, you're in a dangerous place. And I've met way too many Christians over my life who are so spiritual and give that aura of being above it all. And unfortunately, I look back now at a testimony that was compromised, a marriage that was ruined, because they did not take the battle seriously and they could not admit that they were immune, that they weren't immune from it. They couldn't admit that they could fall, that there's this deadly drag of immorality, that it can overcome anyone, 
And one of the things we must come through as we come through Genesis 19 is come to a place of confession where we say, I'm vulnerable. This could happen to me, and it could happen to my family. And I need to take this battle seriously. There's a lot at stake. We must guard against indifference. This is building on last week's. Take the Holy Spirit's convictions seriously. Lot was passive. He was comfortable in it. He shrugged his shoulders. He said, no big deal. But you know and I know ours is a filthy culture. Don't get comfortable. Stay sensitive to what the Spirit's convictions have put on you. And maybe you think back years ago when God said, no, I don't want you watching stuff like that. Or I don't want you reading books like that. Or I don't want you reading Fortune 500. It seems like your mind's going way out there way too often. But you've begun to become a little too comfortable and you set those convictions aside. Don't do it. Don't do it. Take those convictions of the Holy Spirit seriously. Don't set them aside. Don't ignore them. Don't forget them. Again, last week we talked about those convictions. Take them seriously. And fourth, thank God for this fourth one. You and I are completely dependent upon grace. So don't resist his offer to rescue you. Like Lot, we can be slow to respond. We don't deserve his forgiveness, his grace. But fortunately, there's some who hear his voice and reach out and are rescued. I hope that's you. You see, Jesus undertook the greatest rescue mission ever. To a people drowning in sin, to a people who are helpless, called enemies of God, depraved, ungodly, friends with this world, Jesus came to rescue sinners. These angelic beings came to rescue Lot. God provided a way of escape, a way of rescue. And he still offers that to you and I, drowning in sin. You know who respond to that? Those who take God seriously. Those who recognize what's going on is real, and it's a real battle. If you're compromising, maybe you're focusing only on the love of God, not considering his justice. If you're listening to what he has spoken to you about, but ignoring it, you're in a dangerous place. Dangerous place. Some of you here today, you have to admit, you've never reached out and called on Jesus Christ to rescue you from sin and its penalty. Today you can do that. You see, you have a choice right now where you sit to do one of two things. Same choice Lot had and Lot's wife, to take God seriously or to shrug it off and say, maybe tomorrow. It's not that big of a deal. We all have that choice right here, right now. And I couldn't help but stop and say, God, how do we take you seriously Sunday morning? What do we do? What strikes me, we need to stop and ask the question, A, am I taking God seriously? B, have I ever called upon Christ to rescue me? And some of you here haven't done that. Young, old, it's for everybody. You need to ask yourself, have I done that? Not have mom and dad done it. Not that I grew up in the church. Wrong questions. Have you reached out and asked Christ to rescue you? Because there's coming a day when God will give the ultimate no more. 
There was a day, maybe Lot's wife thought, well, maybe tomorrow. I'll take a glance today, no big deal. Lot's wife didn't have another opportunity. That's what Paul's saying. Now is the day of salvation. Don't worry about tomorrow, now. Take God seriously now is what he's calling you and I to do. Some of you are here and you say, you know what, I did call upon Jesus maybe years ago or, or maybe not that long ago. But as you're here, you're getting pulled under by this undertow of this cultural immorality. You begin to shrug your shoulders a little bit and begin to compromise. As you sit here right now, you need to be honest, I have not taken God seriously. And that needs to change. And you know it, and right now you're ready to say, it's time. This has got to change. So what I'm asking you to do this morning is to take God seriously. Right now. He's here. I know he's speaking because we're opening his word. And this morning, I want you to listen, young and old. Nothing's more important in this moment right now. Not anything later, tomorrow, right now. Because God's speaking now. God has an offer to rescue you right now. Don't refuse this offer. There's no guarantee you're going to have any other opportunity. Lot's wife didn't. We sang a song, come, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. It's true. They are. If you've never come to faith, you've never called upon Jesus to rescue you from your sin and its consequences, this morning is your chance. I'm going to invite you up front here in a second. Maybe you're like, oh, I'm a little nervous. I know I need to, but bring a friend, maybe a parent, and say, would you come up front with me? I, I need to do this. I need to take God seriously, and I need to call upon him to rescue me. If that's you, get ready. Some of you here feeling you're getting pulled under. You begin to shrug it off a little. You haven't, you're not taking God seriously. And right now, your title, your career, your, your spiritual reputation, they mean nothing in here right now at this time. God says, you need to set that aside. This is me and you, God's saying. And no matter what around all this, and maybe you're worried about all those other things, God says, no, no, no. You need to take me seriously right now. And if that's you, if you're a believer, but you're living in defeat, and you're like, I need to come and lay it down. I need to take God seriously. You need forgiveness and deliverance from what you've been playing around with. And you want to commit to take God serious. We're going to give you that chance. Jay's going to come up and play some music. And I just want to invite you, if you, if you want to call upon Christ the first time to rescue you, or you're, you're a believer, but you're beginning to drown and compromise, and you're like, that's enough. I want to, I want to commit to taking God seriously. There's going to be some people up front, some elders who would love to pray with you, or if you have a brother and sister, you look around and you want to say, come here, I, I, I need you to come pray with me. This is the place to come up front. Maybe you want to sit in a chair or kneel at the altar, that's fine. And, uh, but we want to give you that chance to do that. And so... God's speaking to you and you're ready to take God seriously, come up front. That's what the altar's for.
manipulation, no pressure. It's just really straightforward, isn't it? If you want to take God seriously this morning, come to the altar. Don't let embarrassment stop you. Don't, don't harden your heart towards his voice this morning. Come forward.